pray. Greatly are you, Lord, to be praised through song, through the worship of our hearts, through the faith granted us to pray according to your will. Greatly are you to be praised for condescending to give us, Lord, your holy word written down for us, to minister to us. We thank you for you are the living word, and we pray now uh, that you would be glorified as your word is proclaimed, as your word is preached to your people, to edify them in the faith, to build them up in the finished work accomplished through your Son, to understand more deeply that you have only had one way of ever saving anyone. From Adam to the last soul that will be saved, it is through Christ alone. May we understand that this morning by way of the text that is before us. May you be glorified and your people built up and edified in this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, beloved... Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. We'll continue our study in this glorious epistle. Paul's letter to the church in Rome. If you would stand and we'll look at chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 8. God's word reads, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen, and you can go home. (laughs) It preaches itself. Now, sit down, please, if you would. (laughs) Well, we've been looking at Paul's teaching on justification by faith. That is justification by faith alone. And that is the teaching whereby Paul sets forth the scriptural truth that the way that a person is saved or declared righteous is by faith, which, as we learned, is also a gift. All of which is grounded in the grace of Almighty God. 
purchased through the work of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, not through any works of our own whatsoever. So when we talk about being justified, declared free from all blame, justified by faith, we mean being declared righteous, declared as though you were righteous. Not practically, perfectly right, but positionally righteous, and thus accepted as righteous by God through the instrument or the means of faith. And this is important, beloved, because every religion, every cult, every system of belief throughout this world, whatever their tag is, whatever their title is, every religion somehow, some way, one way or another, believes that in order to stand in the sight of God or get to heaven, if you will, you have to show some kind of merit. You have to earn your way into heaven. Or a place, the place of paradise or reaching nirvana, whatever they believe, it's works-based. You have to do to get. Now, throughout time, no doubt, it's been taught that mankind buys his salvation, kind of along the installment plan. And people at best, many, hope that their good will outweigh their bad in the end. And they can squeeze their way in. But Christianity, however, is the only religion, if you want to call it that, that opposes man's work and the exaltation of his worth. Because man in and of himself is no good at all. There is no one good, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So Paul has made clear there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, pointing out that the whole thing was paid at once for all those who rightly believe. And yes, there's a right way to believe. And that is to believe in the one true way. So we are fully dependent upon God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is grant us salvation. This is what Paul has been arguing about. Now, last time we were together, um, as Paul was underlying the grounds for our justification, he raised yet another question. And in verse 27, um, in the midst of that legal argument, he asked the question, what then becomes of our boasting? Quite simply, it is excluded. No one can boast. Paul's first supporting argument was that there's one God who provides one means or one source of justification, and it's defined there in verses 29 to 31 of chapter 3, justifying believing Jews as well as believing Gentiles. One God, one way to be saved. He's made that clear. Now, for three chapters, if you've been with us, Paul has been defining a great deal of theology. He defined for us total depravity, that there truly is no good in us. We can in no way earn our way. And there's just a list of scriptures citing Old Testament texts right there in chapter 3 that defines that with absolute clarity. 
There is no one good, no, not one. He covers salvation, which is a broad term that includes all that God does for the believer in Christ. He covers the doctrine of redemption, a purchased people, that we were purchased by God through Christ. There was a payment made to the Father. There was propitiation made, which means satisfaction. That means the wrath and anger and hatred that God has towards sin was satisfied through the sacrifice of Christ. So we have redemption, we have propitiation, and here, justification by faith. Again, that's a legal term, beloved. Describing our perfect standing before God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why you're going to heaven. It's only because of the righteousness of Christ. Only by faith in him. Not thinking that, yeah, I think he can save me. No, you know he can save you and he has saved you. My faith and trust is in him. I have nothing in and of myself to offer God by way of works. So here now in chapter 4, Paul is going to put flesh and bone on this theology. So in order to prove his case, he provides two, two more supporting arguments. Number one, he's going to refer to a guy named Abraham. Abraham, who was also justified by grace alone through faith. In who? Christ. But man, he lived thousands of years before. Well, of course he did. His faith was in Christ. And then, um, secondly, he's going to prove that all Old Testament believers were justified by grace alone through faith in Christ alone as well. And he will cite King David. So providing for his audience in Rome, as well as to us this very day, that salvation in the Old Testament occurred in the exact same way as it occurs in the New. And the only difference being the vantage point of the one being saved. Abraham looked forward to the promised one, the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, who actually accomplished the work that Abraham himself could never meet. And we look back to the promised one, the one who has since accomplished that work, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, So the substance of faith, looking forward or backward, is exactly the same. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised, ascended to the right hand of the Father who rules and reigns now and forevermore. So God's covenant of grace was the same then as it is now. And and, and Paul now is going to use Abraham to prove his point. And that's our first point in your bulletin this morning, is that Abraham was justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, it's important that we know, in case you don't, that the Jews viewed Abraham as the father of the faithful. He was the father of the faith, but they viewed him as being faithful because of his own merited piety. That he was a faithful uh, and, and upright man in and of himself. Now, as you know, there are many great men throughout Scripture. You have Samuel the prophet, you have Moses, you have David, you have great prophets like Isaiah or Daniel. Many great men. But 
All great men with wonderful histories, no doubt. Nevertheless, all those men looked back to Abraham as the father of the faith. Father Abraham had many sons. Let's sing it. Father, father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. I used to teach that to kids on Sundays when I forgot the lyrics. Good job, good job. Every Jew revered Abraham. They referred to him as Father Abraham. And as far back as from Genesis, all Jews knew that Abraham was justified before God. Father Abraham. And Abraham's acceptance by God was so certain that they referred to heaven as Abraham's what? bosom. In John chapter 8, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. You remember their response? First, they accused Jesus of having a demon. Okay, the one that they were anticipating and hoping for had come, and then they wanted him dead. They accused him of having a demon, and they said, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, they died. Who do you make yourself out to be? To which Jesus replied, My Father, whom you say is our God, you don't even know him. You claim to know him, but because you reject me, you don't know him. And as a matter of fact, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. How did he see it? He saw it by looking forward by faith trusting in the promises of the Redeemer, looking forward by faith, anticipating the one who would come. He, Hebrews says, was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He was looking for much more than a sliver of land, literal real estate. He was looking for a new heaven and a new earth whose author and builder is God, which would be fulfilled by way of his Son. So, to to better define the doctrine of justification by faith, Paul uses their hero of the faith, Abraham, as an example. So, remember now, Paul's argument is based on the assumption of an objector who would reason like this. Well, sure, Paul, Abraham is an example, no doubt, but he was a good and obedient man, and you've been talking about grace, unmerited favor. Father Abraham was upright. Sure, we believe in grace, but we must do our part in order to be justified, right, Paul? Now, knowing this, Paul points to Abraham and again brings up this matter of boasting. Notice what he says, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to what? To boast about, but not before God. No one can boast before God. Notice he takes him back to Scripture. What does the Scripture say? He takes him to the Word of God. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the gift of righteousness came not by works, but by faith in the revealed Word of God, the one who was promised to come, to uphold the law, to lay down his life. Now, we can appreciate, beloved, why Paul 
uses Abraham in this illustration and why it's so important. He's addressing a people in a church in Rome that was made up of not only Gentile believers, but also Jewish believers who banked upon their ethnicity, who banked upon their connection to Abraham in the flesh. So they've been saved. They know something about grace, but yet they could easily be confused because of their very impressive teachers growing up. Very pious men, rabbis that that taught them the things of God. And they were also surrounded by uh, unbelieving family members who would have refuted what Paul was teaching. So there's this conflict. They go, who do we believe? Are rabbis growing up or do we believe Paul, the apostle? Who's right? So it was very important for Paul to explain this truth to the congregation in Rome. So he points to Abraham and he asks, how was Abraham, our father in the flesh, justified? Was it by works? No, for then he would have something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, man's works might gain the applause of men, but it won't gain the applause of God. Nobody works their way in to heaven. So he uses this great man of faith, Abraham. Now, remember this. To the Jew, the greatest thought with regard to the blessings of God had to do with progeny, offspring, descendants, especially if you had sons to carry on the great family name. Now, Abraham, if you'll turn back to Genesis 15, in his day had unrivaled wealth, but he had no children let alone sons. Notice in Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number of stars, and if you are able to number them. In other words, he says, Go for it. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as what, beloved? As righteousness. And you just hold your place there for a minute. God's promise was in his old age, and Abraham trusted the promise of God. He trusted the word of God. Now, his faith, no doubt, had, it, had its own bouts of doubt, as does yours and mine. Amen? We all have doubts of bout. And he asked God in verse 8, How? How am I to know that this will come to pass? And then God goes on and he, he swears by taking an oath in his own name. He brings all these sacrifices. And Hebrews 6 verse 13 says God swore by his own name. In other words, to make a sacrifice like this is to basically say, 
When you take a covenant in the Old Testament, you know, may God do to me if I do not uphold my promise. And here's God saying this. And then a deep sleep falls upon Abraham and he dreams of 400 oppressive years before his offspring actually reaps the great promise of possession. And that, of course, was the time of the Egyptian captivity, which would hold this people in bondage. So the main point here is that Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him, placed upon his account a righteous standing before God. So he says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Nothing. Flesh in the Bible refers to human activity apart from God's influence. In other words, mere human effort. Again, no one works their way in. So Abraham was not saved, beloved, by his own ability, not by his works, but by the grace of God, believing in God, that he would provide a way. Therefore declared righteous. Now, the Jews, no doubt, boasted in their physical lineage. And they missed the spiritual connection. All true believers this morning, if you're a believer here this morning in Jesus Christ alone, your roots are in Abraham. The spiritual lineage, not mere physical ancestry. Listen to Galatians 3. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his what? His offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is none other than Christ. Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Galatians 6, for neither circumcision counts for anything, that was the sign of the covenant for ethnic Israel, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And it's for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Who's the true Israel of God? All those who are in the true Israelite, who is Jesus Christ. That's you. Sons and daughters of Abraham. So Abraham's seed, beloved, at the base was a physical seed. But in extent was a spiritual seed that led to the ultimate seed, who is Jesus Christ, the promised one. So at this point in time, the Jewish believer was thinking merely on the physical. And they entrusted themselves and their salvation to the physical lineage. So the Jews had a very flawed view of Abraham. And they believed that they were saved because of his piousness. God says no. Because in and of himself, you know what Abraham was? He was a pagan idolater. Pagan idolater. Go back to chapter 11 of Genesis. We'll pick it up at verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Naor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in the Ur, in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
Verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Iran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great what? nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So here a pagan idol worshiper comes from a family of pagan idol worshipers but notice God called him from his place and his practice. Where were you when God called you? What were you doing when God called you? What did you worship? Who did you worship when God called you? Probably yourself. Our favorite idol is self. But God in his grace comes to those that he determines before the foundation of the earth that he will save and he comes to them at a specific time and he calls them from their place and from their practice. So God says to him, while he's a pagan idol worshiper in Ur of the Chaldeans who settled in Haran, he says, Abram, come out, come out, and I'll make you a great people. Abraham wasn't a Jew. There was no such thing as a Jew. God made Jews. He made them a people. So here you have a Gentile pagan idol worshiper called by God out of his place, out of his practice, based on what? God's grace alone. What did this man do? He did nothing to merit this. There's no such thing as a Jewish people. God made a people out of this man. And because of his belief in the one who makes the promise, which is God himself, he deems this man as though he were righteous. That's the difference between position and practice. As a believer, you must understand. You truly believe in Jesus Christ? Your faith and trust in him? Then you must understand your position in Christ in spite of yourself, in spite of the fact that you keep stumbling and bumbling along. It's your position Amen? Then, of course, as we grow with a greater understanding of our position, hopefully our practice changes. Amen? That's called sanctification, which we'll talk about in a bit. So Paul brings Abraham into the discussion to show that this is the only way that Jew or Gentile can possibly be saved. Now, remember his audience. It's a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. Perfect, right? He goes back to this man, uses him as an example who came from a pagal, pagan, idolatrous family, and he makes him a covenant child. It's been a rude awakening for these ethnic Jews. Paul takes them back to Scripture. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. <clears throat> and to the one who does not work but trust in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Notice, Paul is simply expositing Genesis 15, verse 16, in the doctrine of justification by faith. You see what he's doing here? He's preaching to this church 
by way of a text of the Old Testament. That's what we do here. We read the text and explain it. If you're visiting here today, you go, whoa, what's up with all the detail? Read it, explain it. That's called exposition. <laughs> and it edifies God's people. In the same truth, to those who have ears that hear, who come in, who don't believe in Christ, by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in his due time, actually takes the word and transforms hearts and calls people out of their place and out of their practice. That's the power of the word. That's why we do what we do. So he's expositing Genesis 15. And you know, every other saved person before Abraham, you can go back to Noah, you can go back to Abel, go back to Adam, the first man. How were they saved? They were justified by faith. They were justified by grace according to faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith in the promised one. Notice, verse 4, he goes on to say, Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if you have a system of works, everything then depends upon the sinner. If you have a system of grace, everything depends upon the Savior. And notice the consequence. Under a system of works, God provides a fair trial. Okay? And if you're saved here, you praise God that he's not fair. Because if he were fair, you'd be, you'd be going to hell. Period. So if people say, well, I just hope that God is fair, that if you, if you plead not guilty, you can only hope for a fair trial. And if you hope for a fair trial, you're going to get a fair trial. And Abraham would have been owed something by God, and it would be guilt and punishment. That's it. That's his due. But under a system of grace, anyone who pleads guilty, all they can hope for is not a fair trial. You hope for mercy, not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. What you do deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And in Christ, you have grace and mercy. So God provides then his free pardon through faith, therefore justifying you in Christ, declaring you free from all blame, standing positionally right in his sight. So it was accounted to him as righteousness, and thus he was justified by faith alone. Abraham, Old Testament saint, saved the same way you were. Again, justification means a righteousness that's imputed to you. A righteousness that is placed upon your account. It provides a right standing of you before God in spite of you. That's justification. Sanctification is different. You don't want to confuse the two. Sanctification means righteousness imparted to you. It's righteousness that's made part of your life. And when you're justified, saved, declared free from all blame, you understand the grace and mercy of God. You understand that he loves you in spite of you. And in response, there's a reciprocal love. You love him in response and in return. Therefore, there's a desire to obey. He conforms you into the image of Christ. And imparted righteousness gives us a credible standing before men. That they actually believe that you're a Christian by the way you live. Justification is in spite of any works. It, it, it stands you in a place that deems you as righteous 
in spite of yourself, sanctification imparted gives credible evidence that you are who you claim to be and whose you claim to be. Amen? Don't confuse sanctification with justification or justification with sanctification. Okay, what good is it to say that I have faith in God if my life does not reveal faithfulness to God? Now, because you people know your Bible so well, we have to cite another text to clear up any confusion because some of you are sitting here going, okay, Romans says that, that Abraham was justified by faith alone, but James says Abraham was justified by what? Works. So let's turn to James 2. It's after the book of Hebrews. James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needy, needed for the body, what good is that? So also, there he uses an illustration and says, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Oh, you do well. Well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by what? works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone okay so what's the deal is this guy justified by faith or is he justified by works? Is this a contradiction? Is James a strawy epistle as Luther once said it was before he had a proper understanding? He later denounced that, by the way. No, it's not. The answer here is provided in what the individual authors are trying to express for the readers. Very important. And I didn't want to go on without covering this. Now, notice this. Paul, in Romans, is trying to answer how a sinner can possibly stand in the presence of a holy God and be accepted. It's by faith alone. Believing in the promise maker. Believing in God and his promise that through his son he will provide a way. James is addressing an entirely different question. And it's raised in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, says he has faith? He says he has, but he has not. Is saving faith giving mere intellectual assent to the reality of Christ and his work, beloved? No. It's called easy believism in our day. James says merely believing about God and merely believing in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, simply puts you on the same playing field as a demon. 
Because even they believe. They know who he is. They know what he's done. And the scripture says that they shudder. But to have personal faith and trust is a different thing altogether. So, you know, you can, you can even believe that Jesus can save me. I believe that he can save me and not have faith and trust that he will or has saved you. Oh, I believe he can do that. Yeah, I believe he's Lord. Yeah, I believe he's the Christ and not be saved. Before I was saved, beloved, I could give such sound intellectual assent to Christ and the gospel. A guy knocked on my door once. I think I told you about this guy. He died in a really bad accident. He began to take the doctrines of grace and use it as a means in his, uh, to, to live a life of, of uh, sinful desire, saying, hey, man, it's, it's grace alone, man. Remember that guy I told you the story? That same guy, when I first met him, had a fiery zeal for Jesus Christ. And I noticed, man, that dude's life is different. Well, he invited me to church once, and I went, and then he did a follow-up on that Monday with some of his friends, and he knocked on my door. He said, glad you came to church. Glad to see you there. I was watching Monday Night Football. I was a little irritated. This is in the 80s. And uh, I said, okay, dude, what? What, what? what do you want? He goes, I just have a question for you. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? I said, yeah. And he goes, based on what? Great question. Based on what? Well, I could answer the question correctly, theologically correct, but I'll tell you, I was not justified by faith alone in Christ alone. I will tell you that. I was not born again of the Spirit of God. But when I did, by the grace of God, put my faith and trust in Christ for my salvation by faith alone in Christ, my life began to change into a life of faith. You see, a life of faith. You know, the reformers used to say, justification is by faith alone, but not a faith that what? That is alone. So James says, no one is saved by a mere profession of faith, but rather by the possession of faith. Not mere profession, but possession. If someone simply asks, can this professed faith save me? James says the answer is no. In other words, anyone can say it. So quite simply, James is saying dead faith doesn't save anyone. There are plenty of people who believe in orthodox Christianity who are not saved. Donald Gray Barnhouse commented on this a number of years ago, and I have it here. There we go. Quote, I believe that Christendom is honeycombed with such false believers who have adopted a mental attitude of acceptance of the orthodox position about the person of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is the one and only Savior, but who, in fact, refuse to turn away from everything that is of the flesh and of the law in order to be saved by Christ alone. These perhaps constitute the greatest number of the tares which resemble the true wheat of the real real children of the kingdom, but who do not possess the life of God, which he gives only to those who are, like Abraham, willing to turn away from all idolatry of every form of unbelief to be saved by grace alone. End quote. Grace alone. 
So James' argument here, it's important that we understand the two, is against anyone who simply claims faith and there's no visible evidence whatsoever. To which he replies, show me this, said faith, by your actions. Show me it. Prove it by your life. And James, this is important. James cites Genesis 22, verses 16 to 18, where he offers Isaac on the altar in obedience. You see, he's not citing Genesis 15 as Paul does. That by believing he stands just. He's citing Genesis 22. So they're not contradicting one another. It's justification by faith in believing in him and him alone, and the fruit thereof leads to obedience. One is the product of the other. So when God credited positional justifying righteousness to Abraham, beloved, this is very important. In chapter 15, God did so instantly. Right then and right there. Any change for the good in Abraham to do works of obedience that change his character was done so gradually, subsequently. Uh, meaning it was the result of justifying faith, not the cause. Okay, do we have that straight? His works were not the cause of justifying faith. They were the product of justifying faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. So his faith and his faithfulness was manifested through belief. And it leads to obedience. So, faith alone, as dealt with by fall, with Paul, has to do with the acceptance with God devoid of any works. God accepts you by believing. Nothing you can do to earn it. Saving faith as dealt with by James is bound to manifest itself by way of fruit. So Paul is occupied with the right relationship with God, counting him as righteous. James is occupied with right conduct, the result of being counted as righteous. Okay? James, Romans. Are we clear? Beloved. You see, there's an, there's an air that is running rampant in the evangelical church today. And that is in the mere value of faith. The mere value of a faith. And everyone says, hey, I have faith. I have faith. But what, if you listen to them long enough, they have faith in faith. They have faith in what they say. The word of faith movement, have you heard about it? I have faith in what I say. I have faith in my faith. Or I have faith in this act that I did toward God. I walked the aisle. I said this prayer. I signed this card. Or yeah, I believe Jesus can save me. Sure. I believe he can take me to heaven. But you see, Abraham was not saved because of his faith as though his faith was worth something that purchased his justification. Being saved by faith is much different than being saved because of faith. Okay? By faith is the avenue that leads to the substance. Okay? By faith is the avenue that leads to the substance. Not because he had this in and of himself and therefore God says, justified. No. Faith is a gift. 
that must be placed in the substance. For instance, with the men's study starting up, and let's say you're going to walk out here to the foyer after service, and you're going to purchase a copy of Holiness by J.C. Ryle, and you have 20 bucks in your pocket. So let's say you walk out there. I don't know who is going to be standing behind there serving you this morning, but you're not going to approach the counter having faith in your ability to purchase the book because you have $20 worth of legal tender in your pocket so that you go up to the desk and say, hey, I can buy that book. I can buy that book. And you can boast all day, I can buy the book, I can buy the book. And they'll think you're crazy until you what? Hand over the $20 of legal tender to purchase the book. So it's not your faith which is the basis in that $20 to make the purchase. Your, your, your faith is in the value of the $20 to make the purchase. Does that make sense? The same is true spiritually. It's not your faith that is the, the substance that saves you by just having it. It's who the faith is placed in, the substance of which? Jesus Christ. That's who Abraham's faith was in. Because if it's not in Christ alone, guess what? You have a counterfeit. If it's another way, it's a counterfeit. The substance, Christ. So you can believe you can buy the book all day and hold your $20 up, wave it around, but until you hand it over, that's when you get the book. So in other words, faith justifies the sinner as it's placed in the one who justifies. That's what he goes on to say, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, so he goes from Abraham to David, and to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and he quotes him, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count what? His sin. And he's citing Psalm 32. And you know the story. This is when David, uh, after public exposure of his sin with Bathsheba was revealed, he pens Psalm 32. He said, night and day, Lord, your hand was heavy upon me when he was unrepentant. My vitality was dried up like the summer heat. I felt sick. I was wasting away. David sinned with Bathsheba. He had lust in his eyes, and he called for a woman that was not his wife. He impregnated that woman. And out of fear and anxiety, he had her husband murdered. So question, what could David do to restore to Bathsheba her chastity? Nothing. What could David do to restore Uriah his very life? Nothing. What could David do to restore his character and his dignity? Nothing. He was a helpless man. He was, his, his case was hopeless. And David was well aware that he couldn't fix his lawless deeds. He couldn't erase them himself. There's nothing he could do. There's this count, account against him. The ledger's full. His works have failed. When people come to realize that, as they grow through their 20s and into their 30s and into the 40s, they start getting paranoid, people who aren't saved. They become paranoid and they start, okay, I've got to start giving to charity and doing these things to, to, to hopefully erase some of this, to, to, to cover up my deeds with works. It's not going to work. 
David's hopeless. All that's, all that's in God's account, according to Romans 3, everyone stands guilty. There's no fix in it. So when I have faith in what God has done, in what God can do through Christ, he provides an amazing gift. It's called grace. Grace that forgives. And that was what was extended to David. And this grace cancels David's sin, counts him as righteous in spite of himself. Was there consequences on earth for that sin? Yes, there was. Is he in heaven with the Lord? Yes, he is. Forgiven, as far as the east is from the west, of all his sin, and he stood righteous in the sight of God then, and now he's in the presence of God forevermore because of the grace extended to him because he believed in the one who would make the promise and fulfill the promise, canceling his debt, removing his sin, making him righteous. So this is what God did for Abraham. This is what God did for David, declaring, as David does here, the celebration of the truth of forgiveness for all who believe And David asserts here, no one can work their way out of this mess to redeem himself. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are what? Forgiven. Forgiven. So here you have two towering Old Testament figures. What better way to appeal to a Jewish audience in Rome who were banking on their ethnicity that went back to Abraham? It's right here. So he's not asking them to turn their backs on the Old Testament scriptures. He was saying, embrace what the scriptures already say. This is no new gospel. This is not a new message. Positional righteousness is provided without any ornaments of your works. And the same is true for you, beloved. Can't be earned. There's no burst boasting. We know that. If it can't be earned, there's no boasting. And if you really have it, it can't be lost. So there's no doubting. He's done it all. And unto him we what? We owe. So Abraham is justified by faith alone in Christ alone. David, justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And you, who are in Christ, are justified by faith alone, according to God's grace, in Christ alone. Paul makes it clear. The Bible from beginning to end teaches free grace justification. How are Old Testament people saved, beloved? By faith in Christ. New Testament saints, faith in Christ. You see, beloved, blessed is the one who is long past thinking that they can commend themselves to God by what they do. Amen? And if you're in Christ, you're long past that place. And blessed are those whose failures God looks beyond, whose sins God looks beyond, not forgetting those sins or ignoring them rather, but forgetting them in Christ as he looks over you to his only begotten son and what he has done for you. That's what's being communicated. God has accomplished everything for you outside of you. You can't stir up anything good. You can't do it because there's nothing good in you. But if you're in Christ, the only good in you is Christ Jesus who lives in me. Justification by grace through faith in Christ alone.
Now, you can preach this a hundred times, and if you're a believer here, this should never get old. As a Christian, this is what we need to hear over and over and over again. I talked to my mother this morning before I am weeping. She has deep faith. What do, you, what do you think I reminded her of? The gospel that she taught me. She taught me the gospel. And as her eldest, I'm reminding her of the same truth she sowed into me in the time of tribulation, in the time of trouble. You can preach this, but there's always those who think, I got to go tidy myself up first. I got so many things jacked up in my life. I need to go clean it up before I can come to this Jesus. Oh, no, no, no. You do nothing. You come to him as a child. He's accomplished everything necessary for salvation outside of you. When he justifies you and declares you free from blame and it's really him doing the work, your life will just change. It will just change. But you don't understand, man. I've been running a Ponzi scheme for 10 years. I will guarantee you, if you come to faith in Christ alone, he'll change your motivations and your desires. And you'll be like little Zacchaeus. If I have taken anybody, if I've taken anyone, if I've deceived anyone, I'll pay them back. How much? What do you say, fourfold? It's a transformation of the heart. Don't clean yourself up. You come to him as a little baby, believing in him, embracing him, and trusting him by faith alone, which is a gift. There's others who sit in the church. They sit under gospel preaching all their life, and they actually think that they're good. I'm a, I, I talked to a friend of mine who grew up in the church. He grew up as a Christian, very young age. And he told me of a story where he goes, I was in college, and I, and I actually thought, I'm pretty good. And God broke him of that thinking. And his faith increased like this because he really began that day to understand that it's all Christ and it really is all outside of me. It's come to me. That's positional righteousness. That's grace that saves. You contribute absolutely nothing to the basis of being justified by faith in Christ alone. Do, please, do we all understand that? Amen. That is the grace gift of God. James is talking about another issue. Because, as I said before, I've heard Howard Stern say, I believe in Jesus. So I'm going to heaven because he knows what that doctrine, what people preach that doctrine. He's the guy I would take to James. not the Christian who stumbles and bumbles. I don't take myself to James when I stumble or bumble. I go back to Paul <laughs> in Romans, right? So again, beloved believers, friends, family, this should never get old because Christ, beloved, is our righteousness. Possessed by us through faith, the channel that leads us to him, the substance of the faith. Not faith in faith, amen? That's the glorious hope. That's the gospel. It's the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. 
That's the Old Testament message. That's the New Testament message. That is the eternal message. The Bible declares it. End of story. Amen? Anyone who's in heaven is there because of Jesus Christ. From Adam on. Amen? May we rejoice. Let's not forget this. Amen? Let's not forget this. Father, we do thank you for the justifying love and grace made manifest through the work of your Son that we truly have nothing that we have ever been able to offer that would give us and provide us a right standing before you, holy and righteous God, that we need a grace and we need mercy that is granted to us according to faith which you also give us to believe. That is a mystery, but we are so ever grateful. Lord, if there is anyone here whose faith and trust is not in you, I pray that you would bring to life these very words sometime today, tonight, this week, that they would humbly submit themselves to your authority, receive your grace and your goodness and your kindness and your forgiveness as David did. And may we, as believers, continue to grow in this grace and the knowledge that has spared us from the separation of you but granted us eternal union with you.